This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. So we're looking at the life of King David. And uh, so far, we have mostly been focusing on two different kings. This will kind of shift as we move into 2 Samuel, but... In 1 Samuel, it's clearly a juxtaposition of two different kings. And on the one end, you have Saul, who is the actual king of Israel. And uh, he is conceited, and he is self-satisfied, and he is godless. He's a ruthless king. And then on the other hand, you have David, uh, who is much younger than Saul, who is kind of the covert king. Um, He is secretly crowned in a way that Saul doesn't really know about. He is the, the chosen one. I thought of uh, young Anakin Skywalker as someone with the force. This force is strong in him in that first movie. That's the kind of thing that you see with David, that somehow the spirit is going to be filling him his whole life. And so you have these two kings, Saul and David. And Saul hates David because David's popularity is on the rise. Uh, David uh, is kind of skyrocketing in, uh, in his popularity. And so Saul is trying to crush him and bring him down. And uh, he is consumed with his murderous jealousy. As you can see, he's already, he's hunting him in this passage in the hills of Hakila. And in the meantime, even as Saul is doing all those things, David continually just keeps loving Saul. It's amazing. We've already seen that before, but you see it again right here. He keeps trying to break through to Saul. And if you do a little bit of uh, kind of psychologizing of David. It seems like his own dad didn't think very highly of him um, based on some stories in the past. And it seems like that Saul is almost like this father figure that he keeps wanting to bless him. And, uh, and so he just keeps doing thing after thing after thing to try uh, to reconcile uh, with Saul. And one day we see here that, uh, actually it's earlier than this, uh, back in, in chapter 24, if you want to go back there, you can look at it in verse 3. Uh, One day Saul happens to come into a cave and David is hiding in that cave. Saul is trying to kill David. Saul walks right into the cave where David is hiding. David's farther back in the cave. And it it says in 1 Samuel 24, 3, Saul went into the cave to relieve himself while David and his men were sitting deep inside the cave. So it's something that would happen, a kind of bizarre game of hide and seek. David's back there. Uh, Saul is relieving himself. And at last, David has the chance of a lifetime to kill his arch enemy. He could just come right up from behind with a, with a dagger and just stab him in the back. Um, but instead, it says in verse 4, David rose up and he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, I don't know how that happens when he's relieving himself, but somehow he got up there with a knife and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And as Saul left the cave, it says in verse 5, When Saul rose and left the cave, David came running out from behind Saul, waving his cloth and bowing down to Saul. And uh, and then listen to what David says. 
This is again, this is back in chapter 24. The Lord gave you into my hand and my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. And you just see right there this desperate attempt again and again for David to reconcile with Saul, to forgive him and to uh, reunite in love with him. And in verse 16 of that same chapter, it says that Saul lifted up his voice and wept and he said, you are more righteous than I. So he repents. And uh, there is a reprieve in the hostility between the two. But now, several months later, we see into the character of Saul, who is almost schizophrenic. He just keeps going back and forth between hatred. And then his mind is pacified. and He goes back to hatred. And so several months later, in verse 2 right here, and this is sadly true of a lot of repentance, is that it's temporary. And we go right back to the thing we did. But it says here in verse 2, Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David. And uh, this is where the heart of David is just absolutely amazing. It says that um, not only did uh, David forgive Saul in this passage, but he risked his life to go into the camp to help Saul to repent and to help Saul see that David did love him. And that's kind of what I want to look at. You know, the first time in the cave, that was accidental. Uh, it just so happened that Saul went in there. Uh, the cutting off of the, the edge of the robe, that was, that was an accident. But this time, David actually sets up the whole event. And he goes into the cave. He sneaks into the camp. He steals his spear. He calls out to him. And so I want to look at the two things. First of all, point one is simply don't take revenge and forgive. And that in itself is a very hard, hard calling for a Christian. But if you, if you follow Christ, if you call him your Lord, then uh, he is absolutely explicit that we have to forgive. 70 times, 7 times. So that's the first point, is we must forgive. But then the second point, this is even harder than forgiveness, is we have to work towards reconciliation. In fact, we're called to lead our enemies to repentance. Uh, that's, that's in the New Testament as well as right here. That we're, and I'll show you the passage in... Um, in Paul's letters, it's in Romans that he says, we, we've got, we're called to love our enemies so aggressively that we actually lead our enemy. Think about who your enemy is. Lead them to repentance. Not only forgive them, that's point one, but also to lead them to repentance and create reconciliation. So first of all, don't take revenge. Um, Saul is chasing David everywhere. We've already seen that. First, the cave was in the wilderness of Engedi, and now the hills of Hakilah. And uh, David does this crazy, daring thing. He does this a lot. He did this with Goliath. He actually goes into the camp with his best uh, fighter, Abishai, in verse 7. And they go into the, the camp of Saul. Saul is pursuing David, trying to kill David. And, and David goes right into the camp. And uh, it's incredibly dangerous what he's doing here. Because if anybody wakes up, he's dead. Um, and, and yet he's willing to do it. And apparently, I don't know exactly if this is true, but it seems like David has his troops praying that God would put the soldiers to sleep. Because it says that God miraculously gave sleep to the soldiers. So I don't know how David orchestrated that, but it's, it's definitely a sign of his trust in the Lord that he did this. And then sure enough, in verse 7, there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And again, remember who this man is. This is the man that has been hunting David down uh, for the last few years. And he's made his life miserable and he is 
threatened David's life several times. He has stolen his wife. We haven't even talked about that. He exiled David from his friends like Jonathan. And um, he drove him out of God's presence. In fact, that's the one grievance that David brings up in verse 19. And it seems like more than anything that really bothers David is that Saul exiled him by chasing after him and that, that David can't be in the presence of God in Jerusalem. And so it says in verse 19, you have driven me out such that I have no share in Yahweh's heritage. And he's talking about the land there. He's talking about Jerusalem. And, you know, if someone had done any one of those things to me or probably to you uh, and that spear was available, I mean, wouldn't you want to strike him? And the reader thinks that's what's going to happen. When you're reading this passage the first time, you would imagine at that point, okay, he snuck into the camp, he's got the spear, he, he's, he's like meters away from him, and he could just, right there, he could, he could put all of his troubles to an end. And, and indeed, that is what Abishai wants to do, verse 8, God has given your enemy into your hand, now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, I will not strike him twice. And I read that, and I, mm, I like that, uh, that attitude that Abishai has. I was um, walking our dog this summer, and it was very hot. And we were crossing Sunset Drive, and um, a middle-aged woman comes out of her house, and she is kind of like aggressively facing me, and she says, uh, don't you think it's kind of hot for your dog to be walking on the cement? And I was like really angry. This anger just rose up in me. And so I, I didn't even realize I was saying this, but I said, you know what? I haven't asked him about that. So I'm gonna, I'll get back to you when I find out the answer to that. And I mentioned that just because when I told my wife, she was appalled that I would do that. And it, it does show how vengeful like my heart is, which is why I like uh, Abishai. I like the Avengers. Uh, I think of Hawkeye and the Avengers, you know, with the bow and arrow. But instead of a bow and arrow, Abishai wields a spear. Um, he would have been a great Avenger. In verse 8, I love that he says, I don't need two tries. You give me that spear and I'll, it'll take me one time and I'm going to pin that guy's skull to the earth. But David in verse 9 says, no. He says, do not destroy him. And um, this is the Old Testament. People think the Old Testament's about law and the New Testament's about grace. That's obviously not true. Here's David, the king, showing incredible grace. It's really a moral miracle, I think. Um, it, it's one of the things that drew me as an atheist to Christianity. Just this teaching uh, on forgiveness. And not just the teaching, but I've seen Christians do it. And um, I've seen them do it to me. And I, I'm absolutely flabbergasted every time I see someone not taking revenge. It's, it's truly a supernatural thing. It is uh, something that supersedes our vengeful instincts, and we all have those. And it's kind of like uh, watching a tumor in someone's soul just vanish quickly. You know, it's, I've seen healing miracles, and those are amazing, but I feel like that could happen um, from anyone. It doesn't take Christianity to perform a healing miracle but with forgiveness, um, it's a different story. Um, it's uniquely Christ-like, I think. The editor of Time Magazine's name is Amy Sullivan. And uh, she was reviewing a movie called As We Forgive. And this is what she said. She says, although many religions teach forgiveness, Christianity puts it into hyperdrive. With Jesus forgiving those who killed him from the cross. And I would say David puts it into hyperdrive even before Jesus. 
And I think the question to ask yourself right now, as you think about an enemy that you have, or maybe not even really an enemy, but just someone that you're really mad at, you want to take revenge on. And the question is, how does David do this? What can we learn from this passage uh, that gives David the moral courage to forgive? And I, I think there's one thing I know at least, there's probably a lot of answers to that question, but one thing is in verse 10, uh, where David says, uh, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die. And something about that gives David the peace. Um, it sounds vengeful, but it's actually pacifying to David. Uh, because David is able to let revenge go because he knows that God will not let revenge go. And that sounds very counterintuitive. We think that if someone believes in a God of vengeance, then they're going to be vengeful. But it's actually the opposite of that. A great theologian from Yale uh, named Miroslav Volf says that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And Volf believes in nonviolence. And he would say that the only way you can actually practice nonviolence is to believe that God is the one who will take care of justice. And uh, he is from Croatia originally, Miroslav Volf. And so he was preaching forgiveness to his people uh, amidst absolutely horrific evil. And this is one thing he says. Um, imagine speaking to people whose villages have been plundered and burned and leveled. This is during the war in Croatia where Muslims and Christians are killing each other. Imagine speaking to them of forgiveness. Whose daughters and sisters have been raped. Fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. You know, it's easy for us to say there's no divine vengeance. Um, that's, uh, that's primitive. Um, but tell someone in Croatia that, who's just had a, a loved one killed. You know, tell them that there's no divine vengeance and that vengeance is a bad idea. Um, someone in that position is going to thirst for justice. And if they don't get it from God, they're going to take it into their own hands. And they're going to be the ones that try to perpetrate the vengeance. Uh, Volf says this, the only way to stop our violence is to insist that all legitimate violence must come from God. Because only God is wise enough to carry this out. Only he knows enough to figure out how to weigh the balances. And only he is kind enough and merciful enough to punish rightly. And so that's not up to you. You can let that go. You can trust that God is going to take care of that. You know, one reason that a lot of superheroes have to be avengers or take justice into their own hands, be vigilantes, is because they know that like Gotham City is not doing that. And that's why they have to do it. But if you trust in the police force, if the, the law is being enforced in a city, you don't have to do that. It's only when you believe justice is not happening that you then take it into your own hands. And so we as Christians leave it to God. And I don't just say that on the authority of First Samuel, I say that on the authority of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourself. That's to persecuted Christians in Rome who certainly felt the desire to avenge themselves. And Paul says, um, <clears throat> never avenge yourself. Never avenge yourself. And the Romans would probably ask, well, why shouldn't they? And then Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God. That's a very surprising response. Leave it to the wrath of God. For he says, quoting the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And when he says vengeance is mine, he's saying vengeance is mine, not yours. And I will take care of things in my way. 
in my kind, merciful, and gracious way. And so I would say that if you are preoccupied with mistreatment, and who among us, when we're mistreated, does not dream of the, the other person's wrong, and we meditate on the way they have mistreated us, and we minimize the way we've mistreated them, and I would say if you are trying to figure out justice, leave it to God. Uh, a watching, uh, protecting God. And if you are like a child on a playground and a bully attacks you, um, if you're all alone, you're going to be tempted to strike back. But if your dad is sitting there, um, then you don't have to do that. Then you can leave it to him. There is uh, this documentary that I mentioned earlier called As We Forgive, and I would really encourage you to watch that. It's probably on Netflix and Amazon Prime, As We Forgive. And it was about the 1994 Rwandan genocide. And 800,000 Tutsi people were killed by their Hutu neighbors in a tribal warfare. And the real horror of it was that they were in the same village together. People who lived right next to each other. And um, you can imagine when the murders were released from prison. I mean, there were so many people who murdered someone that they were, their prisons were overflowing. And they could only let them be in prison like a decade or so. So imagine 2004 comes around and the the guy that murdered your husband and children is now living right next to you again. That was a situation in Rwanda. And so this movie tracks uh, two women and their uh, journey of forgiveness, which is very slow. Forgiveness is not just a one-time decision of the will. It's a very slow process. You have to unpack it, as my friend says. Um, So one woman is named Rosario. She lives next to the man who killed her family, and the film shows her uh, beginning to move towards an act of uh, being in the same room with this man and offering him uh, her forgiveness. And this is one thing she she says. She says, how can I refuse to forgive when I am a forgiven sinner too? I did not create this man. Even my family that he killed, I did not create them either. His crime was against God. His crime was against the one who created the people that he killed. And so I place everything in the hands of God, which is just exactly what David said. It's what Paul says. You place everything in the hands of God. And if you place everything in the hands of God, you've got to believe God has hands, that God is living and active. And uh, as David says uh, in verse 10, the Lord lives. In verse 10, the Lord strikes. In verse 16, the Lord lives. In verse 19, the Lord stirs up. In 23, the Lord rewards. David has a very active sense of God all around him doing things. And if you have that sense, then I think you can let things go. And that's only the first point. The second point is even harder. Because now I'm calling you not just to forgive, I'm not calling you the passages, but to actually lead your enemies to repentance. And that means you step into the relationship again. We always want to just say, I'll, I just, I'll forget about her, or forget about him. I'll never talk to him again, I'll never see him again, I don't want to, anything to do with him again. Forget about it. And the Bible says, no, no, you have to love them. So David actually um, orchestrates here his arch enemy's repentance. He, uh, as I said, he walks right into Saul's camp to release him from sin. And, uh, and he's praying for a miracle that the troops would stay asleep. So the, the, the plan is like this. First of all, steal the royal spear. So he goes into the camp looking for this spear, and that spear is a spear that only the king has. And so he sees the spear, 
Verse 12, he took the spear and the jar of water and he goes away. And the jar of water, I don't really know why he did that. Uh, Second, he walks a long way away. And this is one thing about loving someone who's very toxic is you are allowed to get away from them. He gets, he's not a fool. He gets away from the man who's trying to kill him. And so just because you love your enemy doesn't mean you have to get back in their presence necessarily or hang out with them a lot or chat all the time or even text a lot. And so it says in verse 13, he went far off on the top of the hill with a great space between. He knew what he was doing and he knew that Saul at any moment could just suddenly snap and and try to kill him. So that's the second part. He walks a long way away. And the third part is he gets a long way away and he holds up the spear and he says, look what I have. He says in verse 16, see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And he proves to Saul, I could have killed you. I was right there. And, and look at verse 17. It, it actually works. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son? And David says, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And just being called son there, you can imagine the, what that meant uh, to David. And you can just see, he says, My lord, O king. He, he has so much reverence still for Saul, so much love for Saul. You already you hear the softening, but, but even after this, so he holds up the spear, he holds up the jar of water, he calls out to him, but that's, that's not it. There's another very important step here in leading Saul to repentance, and um, it's in verse 18, and I won't read it all, but 18, 19, 20, really all of that is basically David confronting Saul very directly, very clearly, this is what you did. This is what you did to me. Uh, For instance, verse 18, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? And he probably went, he could have have talked about the cave. He could have talked about all the ways that he's loved Saul. He talks about how Saul made him, drove him out to the wilderness. But he basically, very critical part of reconciliation and leading your your, um, enemy to repentance is telling them the truth. You don't hold back on the truth. You know, without that, you're just enabling someone. But in verse 21, you see that that has an effect. I have sinned. Return, my son David. I will harm you no more. I have acted foolishly, and I have made a huge mistake. And then it all ends with the very thing David wanted, which is this beautiful beatitude. The speaking of blessing. And he probably even raised his hands, as was their custom, to say this. Verse 25, Saul says to David... Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And that was maybe the last moment that they ever talked. And it might have been the last moment that Saul was in his right mind. Clarity and sanity came back to him. And Jonah's going to talk about this next week. But I believe that in the end, well, I don't just believe it says it in the Bible, that Saul is is saved. As crazy as he went and as difficult a time as he had repenting, in the end we see that he is in God's hands. And part of that is because of David here. Uh, and David, meanwhile, as, as Saul is repenting, David is hearing these words of affirmation from his father figure. Um, Blessed are you, my son. You have done well and you will succeed. David never heard those words from his dad, probably. And so we are called to not just passively love, but to actively 
um, engage. So it's not just I've forgiven her, but I don't want anything to do with her again. It's, it's uh, how do I find ways to love her so aggressively that we can reconcile? And listen to what Paul says back in Romans 12. People think Paul is really kind of just intellectual and maybe a little bit mean and, um, you know, that he's kind of crusty, like a theologian, and then Jesus was really loving and all this stuff. Again, that's not true at all. These words of Paul about loving your enemy are as strong as anything that Jesus ever said. In fact, I think he quotes Jesus in this. But listen to this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. This is Paul telling the Romans in this chapter 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him drink. Very practical, little tiny things you can do. You know, flowers, baking cookies, a note, a text, an email, anything. A like, you know, on Instagram or something, but uh, something very practical. And listen to what Paul says. For by doing so, you will reap burning coals on his head. And uh, some people foolishly interpret that as like, if you're really nice to someone, they'll feel terrible. And that's great. And you can make them feel really, really guilty and like dig in the the knife. And that's not, that could not be what Paul means. Instead, uh, burning coals was an Egyptian repentance rite where you would walk around if you really mistreated someone. So if you're married... If you really mistreat uh, your spouse, you put a pan on your head with burning coals and you walk around uh, their house three times and it's a sign that you actually are publicly repenting, that you feel bad about what you've done. And so what Paul is saying is, love your enemies so aggressively that they repent and they turn to God and they turn to you and they reconcile. And this is where the cross comes in. Um, This is the most elaborate, creative scheme of repentance ever devised and orchestrated. Way beyond what David did with the spear and the camp and the sleeping soldiers and getting all the way away and telling Saul. Um, this is God orchestrating our repentance by walking into our life, walking into this world, into a place where uh, he knew he would be murdered. You know, David was risking his life. God was giving his life. God know, knew that he would die in doing this. And He walks right into this world to release us from our sin, not just to forgive us, but to then teach us how to repent and love him. That's what the cross is. It's uh, it's God enduring uh, the most brutal form of death, the most horrific form of death.